Hey everyone, welcome back to Teenager Therapy. I'm Gael, and welcome to the next episode of our Swiping Safely series. And in this episode, it's uh, it's a really exciting one because we're going to be talking to a variety of experts that are going to be breaking down uh, the issue about grooming and predatory behavior and trauma and how to recover from it. So we're going to be able to talk to these experts and get their input on why this is a problem, why so many teens are resorting to these apps, the dangers of it, and the best solutions and how we could kind of help improve this as a community. So our first guest will be Timothy Elliott, who is a psychotherapist that specializes in LGBTQ plus counseling. And so you're going to get to hear him first, um, but I'll let him introduce himself. Thank you, Gael. I'm Timothy Elliott. I'm a clinical social worker practicing for over a decade right outside of DC, Washington, DC. Um, two of my specialty areas are supporting the LGBT community, specifically young people, and the other is helping people recover and heal from trauma. I'm just so excited to be here with you today. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so as you know, this episode is part of uh, our campaign about about the exploitation of LGBTQ plus youth in online communities and also trying to answer the question of how do we facilitate safer communities uh, for queer youth? Um, and, and more specifically is the exploitation of LGBTQ plus youth in dating apps and on hookup apps and apps like those. So I guess I would like to start first with why what you think about queer youth and and the way that the spaces they have available to explore their sexuality their romantic interests and such and if you think there's a lack of spaces that that cause a lot of youth to kind of maybe search for more desperate means to find uh, comfort mm -hmm, absolutely i'm so glad we're talking about this because I, I think it is a real issue within the community myself as a queer person i like to consider myself a youth in retirement so a little removed from it, but I'm just thinking about my own experiences, plus the experiences of the young people that I'm working with right now. Adolescence is hard. It, it's so much going on developmentally and socially. And one of the more challenging things for LGBT young people is to find a space where they are seen and fit in and kind of finding their tribe, you know. So thinking about why so many people do go to some of these um, dating apps and, and networking sites is to try to find a safer place to connect. And so it's something I see all the time with my young people, uh, 15, 16, 17 year olds who are logging on and technology, it, it's beautiful because it does allow us to connect. But the downside is, is it's really easy to, to bypass some of those, you have to be 18 requirements for different apps. Mm -hmm. um, and often it's coming from a place of they're just looking for a, a space to be seen and to be heard and valued in all of who they are and their identity. The the downside, as I, I think you know, and, and I'm sure is where this campaign is coming from, is that there are a lot of risks to that. Everything from catfishing, and you never really know who's on the other end of it. But also from a developmental standpoint, young people, they're brains are still developing and, and oftentimes they aren't able to think through some of the, the real safety risks or, or concerns around meeting up with someone online or using some of these networking sites. And so I'm just glad that we're talking about it. I, I think it is a real uh, concern, but it also provides something for them. It provides a space to connect, which so often they don't have in, in communities, um, in their mm -hmm. families, 
in their schools. And so it's kind of out of a necessity that they turn to some of these other apps that do have some harm associated with them. Yeah, I I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that a lot of these people come to it out of necessity, and I agree with that. And I've even heard uh, the statement that these hookup and dating apps are sort of like a necessary evil in the community. Do you think, do you think that's true? Oh, that's a, that's a loaded question. I, I don't, uh, I'll, I'll just come out and say, I don't think it's a, a, a necessary evil because I, I think that there are other ways that we as a, a society and different communities can do better to create affirming and supportive spaces for everyone, regardless of the identity that they hold. I think that, that as school settings in particular, um, we do a shit job, to be quite honest. And I've worked in schools for about half of my career. And so I feel like I can say that because I've, I've been part of the, the system that in many ways has been fucked up and, and really marginalizes, continues to marginalize an already marginalized community in, in so many ways. So I, I think that while it makes sense why young people in particular are reaching out to the, on these dating apps to find connection and community, I don't think it's a necessary evil. I think that there are other ways that we can create safer spaces for young people to be seen, to be heard, and to feel valued and connected. And what kind of spaces would that look like? I I mean, thinking through the pandemic, I have a lot of young people who are using Discord, which um, has its own pitfalls. I mean, there's a lot of squirrely stuff out on the internet anyway, and Discord tends to, to kind of capture a, a lot of that and, and just what I've heard in my experience. But it's a space where they can kind of set up their own servers and bring in groups based on different shared identities, which it's not revolving around sex, which a lot of the dating apps, it's revolving around sex. Yeah. Now, let's just be honest, you know. I, I think also uh, communities can do a better job of, of normalizing identities. And I, I think that we've come a long way uh, around this, but we still have a long way to go. I'm thinking again in schools, just educating teachers and administrators that all identities are, are welcome and are positive and are part uh, of healthy human development, um, really challenging homophobic and transphobic remarks, but then creating spaces where, where young people can come and connect together um, outside of it just revolving around sex, which a lot of the dating apps, I, I feel like, have been revolved around. Yeah. I think the issue with this, like, just one of the frustrating things about this is that it's such a systemic issue that is just, like, revolves around just society and homophobic uh, ideas and such that, like, because of that, you know, young people don't feel like they have, they're able to express themselves and be open about who they truly are. And they resort to apps like, like Grindr and Tinder and Bumble. And I think my question is, I mean, what can you, I think the overall goal is to encourage, you know, more accepting communities and we're slowly inching towards that. But when you think about the short term and and being a, a 13, 14 year old right now in starting high school, wanting to find more people like them, and they feel like they can't either because maybe their school is just very not accepting of that. And maybe they don't have access to the same like GSA and networking opportunities that like other people in more progressive areas do. What can they do to feel less alone and feel more accepted and, and also have a chance to explore mm-hmm. romantic interests and their sexuality and things like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one resource that comes to mind, it's a national resource, QChat which is an online platform specifically for queer young people. 
and giving them a space to connect. Uh, and kind of the format they use is they have different kind of topic groups that run every day of the week and are facilitated oftentimes by young people themselves, but a, a safer place to come and, and connect with people to, to start building up those social networks and community. The other piece of it, and, and I'm glad that you named it, I mean, this is a systemic issue. Tomorrow, we're not going to get rid of Tinder and, and Grindr. And honestly, I'm not sure if that's really the best thing, kind of big picture. But what we can do, especially for young people, is do more harm reduction. And talking about, all right, if this is something that you are going to do, let's talk about how can you do it safer? And how can we just kind of talk through some of the risks around what information you're putting out there? What pictures are you sending? And when you send a message, a picture, or anything over the internet, you are letting go of some of the, the rights you have to that and the control around where that goes and who sees it. Um, if you are meeting up with people, let's talk through how can we make it as safe as possible? Um, because I was a teenager, and if an adult told me you can't go meet up with someone, I was going to go meet up with them even more and probably do it more frequently, you know? So I, I think that that harm reduction approach can do a lot of good and really help, especially our, our younger um, adolescents, 13, 14 year olds, start thinking through how can they keep themselves safe? How can we empower them to make uh, healthier choices, even if the options that are available to them aren't the best options? Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's a really interesting point about harm reduction. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and in this campaign specifically, the, the two issues that we had come across is, is it better to encourage people to, you know, delete them and kind of abstinence from these apps or warn them about the possible dangers and consequences of them and show them how to navigate them, but in a safer way. And th that is sort of something that I think is, is a, I think a dilemma because in some ways, trying to preach abstinence from anything is usually not very effective. And especially for this, where there's like no other alternative. So it's either go on these apps and get hurt or don't experience anything until you're like in your 20s and miss your entire adolescence and have no chances to really find yourself. So what do you think is the way companies and activists and just individuals should be talking about uh, the issue and should it be like delete it or just try to your best to stay safe on it? Mm -hmm. I, I do definitely come down on the try to stay safe and coming from that harm reduction for a couple reasons. I, I think one, if you tell anybody not to do something, they're more likely to do it. I mean, there's a psychological piece to that uh, of defenses go up and any of the information on why you're telling them not to do it oftentimes are going in one ear and out the other, right? So um, starting right there, if we're really wanting what's best for young people, we've got to build a strong and trusting relationship and connection. And part of that is understanding that there are going to be times where young people are going to do things that we as either peers or adults don't necessarily agree with. Uh, and that's actually a, a, a very important developmental phase for them to differentiate and come into who they are and also to learn how to manage things that they're going to be expected to do after they get through high school and whatever comes next and, and are navigating the world more as an adult. So it's a good learning tool. I, I think the other thing is it, it does open up some conversations that 
I know for uh, adults and parents that I work with can often be very uncomfortable um, because dating often is related to sex and sexuality, which for many adults, it's just a, a, a not a super comfortable thing, but we've, we've got to take the stigma away and say, you know what, I might not agree with your choices around being on this app, but if this is something that, that you're doing, let's have real talk about it. Let, let's kind of break it down and how can we make this as safe for you as possible? Um, sometimes I've actually found that when young people are engaged in those conversations, it opens them up to other possibilities of ways of connecting that they may not have thought about before. Because I think a lot of this comes from young people, especially queer young people, don't have the space to talk about the things that are coming up and to explore some of the, the normal developmental stages of socialization and relationships and sex and sexuality as their, their non-queer peers do have because of some of the stigma that's out there. So yeah, I definitely come down on that harm reduction approach. And we need to, as uh, adults and supporters and individuals, kind of look into any of the biases that we hold about some of these dating apps, check ourselves, do our own work so that we can actually show up and be fully present with a young person if a conversation comes up and really give them um, our full attention, but also helpful information so that they can make safer choices. I think it was interesting that you said that if if you talk about these issues and you really are sincere and honest about your concerns and you just tell them straightforward what they should be expecting, that that makes people more likely to actually maybe try to find other alternatives. Uh, so I guess that goes kind of hand in hand with preaching abstinence and how that just kind of blocks people off. But as soon as you you kind of just empathize with them and try to understand them, you find that there's actually young people start to be like, you know, maybe you're right. I I understand, and maybe I should look into other other alternatives to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so much of it too is it's just they don't have the space, the the literal space to kind of talk through things, and not 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 one of us. Uh, can process and think through everything on our own. Like none of us are on an island. We need community. Like we are, are creatures yeah. of community and connection. And especially so during the, the kind of developmental years of adolescence, young adulthood, so much is happening on a brain science level that we need that perspective and that sounding board um, to hear ourselves say it, to have someone else witness it and hold it, and to kind of expand our perspectives on what's possible. Yeah. And another thing is when it comes to queer communities, a lot of, well, one, it's kind of upsetting that this has become such a normalized part of the, of being a young queer teenager that many people just see it as this is part of the queer experience. Like I was, if you go through TikTok and every once in a while, a video about a teen sharing their experience and telling someone like, uh, don't go on Grindr or something. The comments are just filled with like, Oh, I've been on this since I was like 13. Like it's just normal, right? It's normal. What do you think could be the long-term consequences of normalizing this? Is it why maybe the queer community tends to be very, I guess, sex driven and just, sexual in nature from a very young age is it because they don't have the chances to explore their sexuality in like a slow burn type of way and they kind of just enter this world all at once yeah i, I think that there is a pressure cooker effect to it because of, of some of the homophobia and transphobia that is very alive and rampant in our, our country 
and in every area of our communities, unfortunately, that it doesn't give the space for healthy sexual development to, to happen out in the open, you know. Um, even just thinking of our country, which is a very prudish country uh, compared with other countries and communities around the globe, that, that sex already has a stigma associated with it. When you have sex in, in ways that are differing than what society sees as kind of the, the I hate this word, but, but normal or predominant or, or whatever the, those kind of associations are, it makes it even harder for young people especially to feel safe enough to talk about it or, or to think they're allowed to talk about it. So yeah, I think that that's a piece of it. It's that pressure cooker effect of if it was taught about in schools, like our sex education is shit. And yeah. I've been on some of the, the committees here in the DC area with school districts that and are the most progressive in the country around sex ed and queer sex ed and just educating at an early age. And it still doesn't go far enough to really normalize things at an early age and, and create the space for, for more healthy sexual development throughout adolescence. That's really, I think, a big part of it. Yeah, it's sex ed. Why do you think, I, I guess it really just all comes down to just the way society views gay sex and how it's viewed just very much as sinful and uh, gross or just abnormal so it's unfortunate that a lot of teenagers kind of I guess just feel like they're not valid and like they're doing something weird and disgusting and mm -hmm. I, I guess maybe that's why when they're finally like exposed to that world it's sort of just like an instant they have to be just forced to learn everything on their own um, which yeah. I think part of that means they'll go on these apps and they'll experiment with much older people because not a lot of people that are their age really have any experience. So that everyone's kind of on the same boat. Mm -hmm. Do you think mm -hmm. maybe even the lack of sex ed is the reason why so many young people tend to resort and maybe even hook up and have sex with people 10, 20 years older than them? I think that's a contributing factor. Absolutely. I think that there's also that that sense of safety or, or community, that that perception that's there, and unfortunately, oftentimes is not. And and we see time and time again that young queer people are, are connecting with older queer people, and it, it can open them up to um, different levels of, of uh, abuse or, or maltreatment. Unfortunately, um, but it's this idea, this construct that older queers know and they've experienced it, they can kind of teach me, which in some ways is very true. The, the elders in our community hold so much wisdom and we really do need to, to hold that in reverence and, and learn from it. But at the same time, I, I think going back to, to sex ed in schools, we could be doing a better job at, at opening up the space and, and giving accurate, real talk information. Um, I mean, even this idea of gay sex, what is gay sex? It, it, there's no gay sex. There's sex with different body parts, with different mm -hmm. body types, with, with different acts and, and ways of connecting. And, and if we could talk about it more from kind of that space, I, I think that it, we'd be doing a lot of good in creating the space for everybody with all sexual identities and experiences and interests to be able to navigate it a bit safer. Why do you think that LGBTQ plus youth resort 
to older men and why has that been so normalized i mean you see it in in movies like you know euphoria and call me by your name which is one of the most popular really queer movies and it's based around a sort of predatory relationship between a teenager and an older man why why is that such a large part and and just so normalized in the queer community mm-hmm. yeah well, I'm thinking about a, a couple of clients who I've recently worked with and, and part of their story and why they gravitated towards older men as they were navigating relationships was because of the negative experience they had with their peers, um, specifically being homophobic or transphobic and, mm-hmm. and not having the space there. And, and so in, in, they mind, in their mind, and they even said this to me, they said, Timothy, there's just no one my age who I'm interested in. And even if there were, the, no. the pool is so small. There's only like one or two people that I know that are around my age. Um, I, I need more options. So I, I think part of it is a visibility thing. Part of it is a, a trauma thing that, that there have been experiences uh, of uh, real negative interactions with, with peers. And, and part of it is what we had spoken about earlier that there's this uh, perception that if you're older, not only are you going to have more experience sexually and kind of help me along, but also just more experience as a queer person navigating the world. Um, almost like it, it feels very uh, much like a mentorship almost, uh, an informal mentorship, if you will, uh, of having someone who's been there who could guide them through, um, which in some ways makes sense. In other ways, the world is so different. I mean, I'm uh, mid-30s and I'm thinking about when, when I was going through middle and high school and, and kind of coming to terms and understanding who I was. Uh, it's so different than what young people are going through right now. Thinking about technology, we didn't have the apps back then. Um, thinking uh, uh, about understanding and communities, we've come a long way. There's still a long way to go. And, and so that whole idea of I have to find an older queer to kind of guide me sometimes doesn't hold as much merit um, and, and can do some harm. You said that some of your clients have told you that they're just not interested in people their age. And, and that's really interesting because I've definitely heard that same sentiment among like my own queer friends. And, you know, I, 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 I noticed they like seek out older men and I'm like, well, why do you do that? Why don't you just try to find people your own age? And the repeating, you know, statement they tell me, the repeating answer is just exactly there's, I'm just not interested. Like everyone my age is just too like immature and it's just, it's just, I, I don't know, I guess maybe queer youth more than anything are just looking for someone to comfort them. And because people around them are young, they can't comfort each other's and they need someone, I guess, experience, but what are what do they need comfort from what is what is it that yeah. they're trying to be comforted from yeah well i think part of that is the experience that they've gone through you know coming out and coming into ourselves as a a, a queer person can be traumatic and for non-queer people they aren't forced to come out or, or to navigate some of those very sophisticated processes so Part of it is, as a queer person who's come out and gone through, uh, is this person going to be accepting? Is my family going to be accepting? Or am I going to have to deal with some backlash, whether it's verbal or physical or, or being excluded from friend groups or being asked inappropriate questions? Uh, that can kind of mature them faster than developmentally their brains at, if that makes sense. 
And, and so in some ways, when they're connecting with peers, uh, it's almost like, oh, what are you complaining about? Like uh, a, a school assignment or what college you're going to go to? I'm here dealing with real shit. Of, am I going to get kicked out of my house or not? And, and they don't feel like they can relate because experiences, lived experience is so different based on the, the trauma that they've had to navigate through. And so it's sometimes I, I feel that that's another reason why younger queer people will connect and attach to older queer people because there's this sense of, oh, you get it in some way. You, you've been there and I don't need to explain myself for you. There's this automatic buy-in, which actually makes it feel safer. Um, Another issue um, is why are there so many predatory men on these apps and maybe this is just a, a larger thing something that is like common but it's just more visible in the queer community but you go on apps like grinder and you'll find that people there's grown adults that are perfectly okay with hooking up with a 13 year old a 14 year old and they're willing to do that i mean if you go on the app you say like you're underage like not many people will care why is that so common on these apps mm-hmm. I think a part of it is the psychology of anonymity. Being able to hide behind a screen, it allows you to to do things that maybe you wouldn't do or lowers inhibitions around that. So I think that that is a piece of it, just kind of all of these apps are fairly anonymous or at least to the level that you want them to be based on what pictures you share and, and things like that. Yeah. I, I think also it is the, the app is there specifically um, for sex. And I know a lot of people will say that, no, it's there for networking and building connections. And sure, um, I believe you. But I also know that in the experience of many of the people I've worked with, that's why they go to these apps is it's an exploration around sex. And are people going to find me attractive? And well, can I explore different sexual behaviors with, with people? Um, that that's what it was created for, you know? So I think that's another piece. It's kind of um, coming from this area where maybe the, they have not had spaces to explore things in a, a safer or more age appropriate way. Again, going back to the homophobia and transphobia in our society, um, which goes across ages. Like the, when we talk about the impact, it's not just on young people, it's on people that are in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And sometimes um, impacting them uh, in deeper ways, not not ones more or less, but deeper ways because of the experience that was so different as they were growing up and coming into who they are or understanding a piece of their identity. You think maybe is is part of the reason that a lot of older men seem to be okay and sometimes even actively actively seek out um, younger people is because they themselves never got to explore their own sexuality while they were young so they missed out on like their teen years and their young years and when they were finally able to like be themselves they were a lot older so there there's like a sense of what does that feel like what does it feel like to be young and you know be sexually active with someone that's also young absolutely i i think that you're you're hitting the nail on the head with this one there is this um i've missed out and how can i kind of reclaim some of that 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 could be a piece of it as well absolutely Interesting. And I know your specialty is just treating trauma with young people. And, you know, why do they seek out risky behaviors and situations? And 
I guess there's a lot to unpack here, but first of all, I would just like you to maybe just let us know, like, why why do people seek out these risky behaviors? I know part of it is just out of desperation and there's no other place to do it. Um, but what are the consequences of this? How are teenagers dealing with it and what are they what are they experiencing? Well, with, with queer teens, we know that they are impacted disproportionately with higher rates uh, of depression, uh, of negative intrusive thoughts, uh, of self-harming or suicidal, um, either impulses or behaviors of substance misuse and, and just other risky behaviors. And uh, unfortunately, there, there's been a, a lot of research done around that. So we have really solid numbers to look at some of the ways that it's impacting our queer young people. Um, but, but the other piece of it is how are we helping them connect both with safe and affirming people in communities, but also to connect with themselves in safe and, and affirming ways. Um, we've talked a lot so far today about kind of the homophobia that's outside and in our communities, but there is an internalized homophobia that happens just by being a human being navigating a homophobic community. Um, and, and that's a piece with, which isn't going to happen overnight. I mean, going back to what you said about this is a systems issue and it would be nice if we could change things with a blink of an eye, uh, but it, it does take some um, really intentional introspection and, and finding a place where we can start talking about it safely. Um, for me and my trauma work, most of the work that I, I do as I'm uh, setting up the, the work in therapy is building a safe relationship with that young person because I know any of the, the work we're gonna do at unpacking the, the homophobic experience they've had in their schools or the internalized homophobia that they may be experiencing, any of the work around doing harm reduction when it comes to some of these apps or thinking through what are some other safer spaces where you can connect and find your tribe of people, that work can only happen in the confines of a, a trusting, genuine relationship. And if we don't have that, the best intervention, the best information, again, is not going to land. It's going to go in one ear and out the other. So I always start with, we've got to create a, a trusting relationship. And that means I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm going to tell you stuff that you may not agree with, and that's okay. I actually really value that. I want that here, um, but I'm never going to lie to you. And, and that's one thing that I do commit, that uh, in our work together, I'm going to keep it real and keep it up front. And I want you to feel like you can ask questions, even if they may be a little bit hard, knowing that I'm not going to judge you, that we all have questions and we need that safe place to be able to explore them together. Yeah, for sure. A lot of this is internalized homophobia. And that's just a whole nother issue that it's unfortunate that there's no overnight solution. And it's, when talking about how you fix this, it's really just small steps and it's, it's a lot of patience. When Obviously, a lot of young people are coming onto these apps and they're coming onto these apps very innocently and they kind of leave and they're, you know, maybe sexually assaulted and traumatized and maybe get violated or just groomed and a lot of other terrible things that could happen. How do you begin to heal from that? Because after the, that traumatic experience, many queer youth don't feel the same way about sex. Maybe when they try to have sex with a partner, they start disassociating or they start, um, you know, getting flashbacks of bad experiences and some maybe don't trust other people anymore and they don't trust them to let them in in, in, in their space in such a vulnerable way. 
So how do you begin to heal from that, especially when you don't have access to therapists and resources and you're just kind of on your own? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing is you've got to, to focus on physical safety, kind of thinking of some of the hierarchy of needs, uh, some of the research and work of Maslow. Um, we've got to look at, are you in a place where you are physically safe and have your, your basic needs met? Um, that, that's got to be priority one. And if you're not, how can we do some safety planning to help you get there? Um, whether it's uh, around looking at how can we just get you through high school to, to where you maybe you're at college or living on your own to, to do more of this work, because perhaps where you're living isn't a safe place to start exploring this. Um, I even tell that to young people who are questioning whether they should come out or not, because they're, they're afraid their parents or, or caregivers might kick them out or have some other negative repercussions. And I'm always of the mind of, we have to do what's gonna be best for you. And if that means keeping this private until you are more self-sustaining and can meet some of your basic needs, let's do that. And at the same time, how can we connect you with other supports online, finding communities that, of queer people that, that understand where you can be open with, just to get you through that. But for me, it, it comes back to, we, we've got to focus on, on that uh, physical safety first, because all of that work, um, if you try to do it too soon or too quickly, it's going to make things worse. That's what we know about kind of the neuroscience of trauma is that re-traumatization and flooding can happen. So oftentimes I'll have young people who come in and say, hey, this horrible thing happened to me, this assault, I want to work on it. And I'm like, I'm here, I, I want to work on it as well, but you've just met me. So it's not going to be safe for you to re-experience and tell me all the details about this assault. We've got to get to know each other. We've got to talk about boundaries and, and how therapy works. We've got to talk about your experience in therapy before. And are there positive experiences that really worked? Are there times where it just missed the mark? And that's information that's helpful as we're kind of creating the safe space together here to do that work that's coming down the line. Yeah. And is, is there a way to that peers can help their own friends and that, that, you know, what kind of work can, can a friend do to, to make a queer friend feel better and just more comfortable and just be supportive? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing is believe them. If they're sharing something with you, uh, don't take that as an opportunity to enter into a debate, especially if it's something about who they are or their identity or an experience they've had. Believe them. Uh, and I often recommend asking, what would be most helpful? Do you just need someone to talk to? Do you want me to help you find resources, connect with maybe a trusted adult who, who can get you uh, other supports or help that a peer might not be able to help? But Believing someone and, and listening to them in those moments does go a long way. I agree. I really like, uh, I really want to emphasize just asking them what they want, because I think sometimes uh, young people, obviously, you can't really blame them because they're not professionals, but they tend to maybe give them arguments or debate with them. And, and like you said, just do everything but listen. And I think it's important that you just ask them what it is you want. Um, and there's no shame in not knowing what your friend wants, even if they're your best friend, you think you should know. There's no shame in that either. It's good to it's good to ask. Yeah. Um, well, none of us are, are mind readers, you know. Exactly. So <laughs> exactly. It, it, we have to ask. That's the only way that you're going to know for sure what the other person needs is by them telling you. Yeah. So, 
those were all the questions that I had. Is there a, was there anything else I missed that you think is important to talk about? We know the other thing I'll just piggyback off of this last question that, that you asked and when it comes to what can we do for our peers who might be going through a rough time, um, helping them do things that will ground them. Um, so often uh, high school is, is hectic and thinking especially about this past year where so much has changed with the pandemic, that takes a huge toll on our nervous system. And so without our even conscious awareness around this, we're at phase 10 around anxiety and stress. And that takes toll on, on our whole body and, and just physical being. And so if there are ways to say, hey, can we just chill? Or can we listen to music? We don't have to do anything specifically, but just be together. Can we maybe go for a walk? Movement is, is great. And I've had a lot of young people as things have opened up more and vaccines are coming out, that, that are going out and meeting up with friends just to walk around the neighborhood. I have one young person who says, I go and we walk for an hour. We maybe say five words to each other and that's fine, but it's just the fact of being physically together and walking can help bring that nervous system back into a space where it needs to be for optimal learning um, for any of us. You know, mm -hmm. So that, that's another thing that we can do is um, don't feel like if someone's sharing something hard, we've got to jump right into action. Oftentimes, we actually need to slow down. Okay. And, and that can be a really helpful strategy for a, a friend who, who might be going through a hard time. That's really good advice. I've never like, that's the first time I've heard about something like that. So that's incredibly helpful. And I'm sure this conversation as a whole has been incredibly helpful for a lot of young people that both are wanting to understand this issue more and just how to help others and help themselves. Uh, so thank you, Timothy, for joining me. It was, a, it was a pleasure talking to you and just hearing you talk about all these issues. It was incredibly informative and just educational. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for inviting me on the show. And our next guest is Matthias, who is a therapist that will be talking with us today about just uh, hopefully just giving you guys some great advice and wisdom on how to deal with the consequences that unfortunately arise because of this issue. So Matthias, do you want to give us a quick introduction to you and what you do? Yeah. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks. I, um, yeah, I'm a psychotherapist in Spokane, Washington, and, and I just, uh, yeah, I've, I've been seeing clients for the past uh, several years and then um, recently started making some content online. And so I'm posting videos on TikTok and Instagram and um, just kind of I've joined the conversation on what it looks like to pursue mental health and to move towards what matters, even despite hardship and conflict. And yeah, so uh, pain and suffering is pretty diverse. There's a lot of different ways that people can suffer and go through hard times. And so it's an honor to kind of just join the conversation and get to talk about how we can move towards what's meaningful, even despite that. Yeah. So what is the what exactly is psychotherapy? Yeah, well, that's just like mental health counseling and psychotherapy. Those are kind of just words for the same thing. So whenever you see a therapist, whenever you're going to counseling, that's psychotherapy. So as opposed to like physical therapy, or mm, you know, like okay. I'm not here to help you work out your ankle injury. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm here to talk, right. About, talk about what's going on in your heart. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of what that is. Okay, great. So mm -hmm. one of the biggest issues that or one of the biggest consequences that teenagers, you know, experience while on these apps is... Well, first, let's dive into the reasoning that leads people to this situation in the first place. A lot of queer people, a lot of LGBTQ plus teenagers 
go their their entire lives not getting the same opportunities to explore their sexuality and romantic interests the same way that a straight person might. And so because of this, many people, many teenagers are in search of validation and they're they're in search to to find comfort and experience love. So what do you think is, you know, what do you think about that? I think um, I think that loneliness is something that really pushes us towards not just like the worst parts of ourselves, but um, kind of the worst in the world. And, and we just become desperate when we get like cripplingly lonely. And because it's a need like to have that companionship, to have that, to be seen with people that we love and admire and want to surround our lives with is a human need. And so I think that, yeah, when we, when we feel like we're, we're in a world where we look around and we're like, okay, I can't really be myself. I can't really talk about what I'm going through. I can't connect with people freely, or at least the avenues to be able to do that are, um, I don't know, present problems and boundaries that I don't know how to overcome. Then I become, I don't know, desperate. Become, I, I look for any means necessary to be able to kind of reach that very human need. And so that's where people kind of find themselves in dangerous the sometimes. Yeah. The need for comfort and for having others around you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Do you think, why don't you think people can find this in themselves? Well, I think that we are formed in community with human beings. Like, for example, there's been lots of studies done on just like little infants and how they grow up and how much like time they get with their caretakers, how much, uh, they get to have, you know, like I have a little girl right now. We just, my wife just had a kid three weeks ago and um, that we just like spend a lot of time just staring at her face and she's kind of looking back at us and she's pretty confused about who we are and, <laughs> and we're getting to know who she is. And there's just lots of like mirroring, which just means that she makes like a really surprised face. And then I make a really surprised face. There's, she kind of, maybe you'll crack a smile and then I crack a smile or she's crying and I'm attending to her and, and trying to comfort her. So there's like, from the very beginning, from the first moments that we're on this planet, we are building who we are with another person. We're building who we are in the context of our family, of people that we love. And and as uh, my little girl gets older, she'll be a toddler, so she'll start to form words, and she'll form words that I form because she'll speak English. You know, <laughs> like she'll uh, use yeah. my vocabulary. She'll describe things in the way that I describe things. And so, you know, when it comes to like finding that settledness, finding that inner peace or calm that's that's not something that's a single person sport that's a team sport that's something that we we form together we regulate and discover who we are in the context of people we love and that love us and i think do you think there's a certain age where you can truly understand what love is yeah that's a good question um i think that we mean a lot of different things when we say love I think uh, there's there's ages where we can feel maybe if we don't know how to understand or talk about that love from a parent or maybe feel what the absence of that love is like when we don't feel understood or we don't feel seen. You know, even little toddlers know what that feels like, even if they don't know how to talk about it. And maybe as we get older, we learn how to put words to what we feel in our chests around the love that we experience with that. But what do you think? You know, I think... I mean, I've always felt that when approaching love and, you know, I, a lot of older people will tell a teenager that you don't truly know what love is. Mm. Um, and when you're young, it certainly feels like you do. 
But another thing I was considering is that I think the more love you experience, the more you understand what it truly is and what love feels like. Because if you've only ever, let's say you've only dated one person and you feel like you love them. Well, how do you know there isn't someone that will show you that you're capable of loving even more? And so because of that, I think that life is definitely just a a constant experience of discovering new heights and new intensities of the same emotions you've always felt, which I guess doesn't really, it shouldn't undermine the fact that when you're young, that was what you knew and that was your reality. So at the time, that was love to you, even though it might not have been later on. Oh, so well put. Yeah, I think um, we also, the way that we were loved as kids and the way that we're growing up inform how we love and try to connect with other people too. And so when we, like, I like what you're saying when you're just saying, oh, that, that first romantic connection that we have somebody, like, tells us a lot about us. And then we're not really sure, like, is that what romantic connection is like? Or could I have a different connection with somebody different? And those are all, you know, questions that we ask and explore within the context of, I don't know, the love that we were shown as kids. And do you think that first romantic connection you experience, your first love, does that shape what you feel like love is capable of? And I mean, I think in, for these, a lot of these kids are going into these apps, not having ever experienced the intimacy of another partner. And because of that, their first experience is someone that could be five to 10 years older than them. And to them, that's what they think love is. That's what they think comfort is. Is it possible to override that? And are there certain effects that that experience will leave on an individual? Yeah, I guess it depends on that first experience. You know, I think there's, like we were saying before, there's just some very basic desires and needs for just companionship to be seen, to be known, to be loved, to, for the unique parts of us to shine through and for those things to be accepted. Um, we desire to feel that companionship and wholeness. Right? And I think that that's, that can, there's a romantic part of that. Like when, when we romantically connect with people, that's an expression and that's a, that's a unifying ourselves with another person to whatever degree in a way of, of trying to match like, okay, who are you? Who am I? And, and we're almost like looking into another person as a mirror and other people kind of reflect different things back at us. And so they, let's, I don't know, for example, like they, they see the artistic and creative parts in us and they really admire those things. And so they're really supportive of our art and of our work, or they, they really kind of love the intellectual vigor that we put into conversations mm -hmm. as we explore the world. And they're like, Oh, you're so smart. I love just like asking you questions and hearing you talk about the things that you're interested in. Uh, maybe they, I don't know, they really connect with us in, in a physical way and that we feel really just warm and comforted and attended to when we connect with them physically. And so there, there's this, it's like whenever you're in a relationship, there's something reflected back at you kind of like a mirror. And so that first relationship, sometimes we think that the only parts of us that matter, the only parts of us that have value is what was reflected back, um, what was reflected back to us in that first relationship. And, uh, and that's why I like what you're saying that, hey, there's, there's a lot of, there's a variety of different connections that you can have with people and you're going to have different experiences, not just of other people, but also of yourself. That's really interesting. That first, I think that first relationship is, I guess, what you determine is worthy of being loved since that's what you know you first knew and i think that's where the danger comes in in having a do you think there's a danger in having a bad first experience sure yeah i um i don't know i think all of us have like kind of these peripheral first experiences like in grade school and in like middle school and <laughs> and that uh 
I think all of us have a story where it's like, oh, that went terribly wrong. Like, I, I, like you, you yeah. just have a crush on somebody or you like somebody and it wasn't reciprocated and, or they thought you were weird or you rejected. Or maybe it, it went great, but then it ended like in flames and, and someone you really cared about, someone that was like your whole world suddenly just isn't a part of your life anymore. And it's hard to even think about who you are in light of that. Uh, yeah, it has a huge impact. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of people, a lot of teenagers on these apps, they they enter very, you know, filled with hope that they'll find a special someone, that they'll find someone they can connect with that cares about them. And what they end up finding is actually very different from that. It is instead mm-hmm. a world filled with predators and just predatory behavior and a lot of abuse and assault and things that they could have never imagined. And when they leave, they they leave very damaged and with a warped perception of their their own self-worth their self-esteem their image how do you even begin to overcome something like that it's a great question you know whenever you go through any form of trauma um, and trauma maybe i'll define that real quick because everyone has a different thing that they mean when they say trauma Um, it's kind of a buzzword trauma is like pain from the past that's still hanging out with you in the present it's it's this pain that has imprinted itself upon you in a way where you feel like you can't get out of the past. Like it's still kind of inside your head. Like you're not really here. You're not really in the present moment. You're not in the current relationship. Like you're still back there. You're still, there's a piece of you that hasn't caught up. Maybe like that's, that's one way to think about it. It's, um, it's when you learn, it's, it's also maybe just like an existential crisis in that you learn something new about the world, but you don't really know what it is yet. Like maybe you didn't know the world was that unsafe. Maybe you didn't know the world was that fragile. Maybe you didn't know you were that fragile. Maybe you didn't know that people could be that malicious. And so you're, you're kind of like warped and, and confused about like what exactly just happened. You know, so for example, like, like if you got bit by a dog, you know, as a young Mm -hmm. kid and, and you're terrified of dogs now. It's because like, whoa, those things were like fluffy and snuggly. And I thought those things were totally safe. And then like, you get bit by a dog and it just shatters your universe because you're like, I didn't know those things were dangerous, like descendants of wolves. Like now I don't know what to think. And that's, that's kind of the crux of trauma is like, I don't know what to think anymore. I don't know where to go from here. I don't know if I'm safe or if I'm in danger. I don't know if things are okay or if things are disorganized. I'm just, I've crushed. And so moving into a relationship that, Maybe it was your first relationship early on. You're kind of like texting somebody or meeting someone online. Like there's so many unknowns. And so you start to kind of form the picture of what you think is going on here. Who do you think that person is? And and uh, if they're safe and if there's someone you want to connect with. If, like we were saying earlier, if there's a mirror, right? That you're shining parts back at you that maybe you like and you're discovering something new about yourself as you're discovering who they are. But then there's like betrayal or or something goes completely off the rails and and it's not just you're questioning that person. It's you're questioning your own ability to assess if you're safe or not. Questioning your own ability to understand if you're okay. And that's where things can become traumatizing. And for a lot of us, we don't really have the tools or understand, like, how can I tell if I'm in a safe situation? How can I tell if things are okay? How can I tell if this person's trustworthy? Especially if it's online. Because like you said, yeah. it's it's not obvious that that it's a it's an equal playing field. Like if you're LGBTQIA, like you're looking around at high school and it's not like you have this huge pool of people to start engaging with because not everybody is, you know, out or, you know, straightforward about like who, um, you know, what their preferences are as far as who they want to connect with. And so it's, 
it's it's highly uh, sophisticated and complicated to to try to connect with people in person. And it's one of the huge benefits of the internet is it can connect to people all over the country, all over the world that are living an experience just like you. Um, but there's also a whole realm of unknown factors that can, like you're saying, can impose a lot of risk. And so having tools and being able to like identify what a safe and unsafe situation is, is paramount to being able to form a really satisfying, rich connection with somebody um, in a way where you're not opening yourself up to being traumatized. Yeah. Do you, how do you, you mentioned that there is, there's a time and because of a series of events that happened in the past trauma, you start to fear the unknown. And Mm -hmm. if you experienced abuse in a relationship, in a past relationship, and you're scared to go into a new one because you're scared of getting hurt, you're scared of getting betrayed, assaulted or anything else. How do you begin to overcome that? Yeah, it's a great question. You got to learn the lesson of what happened. That's that's part of it. So, for example, if if I was in a relationship where someone cheated on me, and I didn't see it coming at all, maybe they've been cheating on me for a year, and and I was and so that's that's a crisis, right? Because that doesn't just rewrite what you think about that person. That rewrites that entire year of your life. All these moments that you thought you were safe, you were actually in the presence of someone untrustworthy, and so. And you were blind to it. You didn't know. You didn't know that that they were cheating on you or that they were with somebody else. And so part of what makes that traumatizing is that you don't know which situations are safe or not safe. Like your your uh, your smoke detector wasn't working <laughs> is another way to put it. Like you couldn't sense that there was a, there was, this was burning down. And so what you got to do is go back and redial the smoke detector so that you can sense for next time if you're safe or not. And so a lot of these situations, whether it's something horrific like abuse or by being harmed or whether it's something like being betrayed or or even if it's something, you know, pretty uh, common, like just like you're in a relationship with someone that really you connected with and and you thought things were going great, but now they, I don't know, they fell out of love or they became disinterested and you don't know why. Like you gotta, you gotta do some work and find out why and and not why is in like, you got to figure out what that person's experience was and, 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 and like, because you can't read someone's mind, but you have to be able to kind of tell for yourself, like, when can I tell when I'm in danger? What can I tell? How can I tell if I'm really connecting with someone or if they're on a different page? How can I tell if I'm, if I'm in a situation that's dangerous and could lead to my harm? And when you start to update that, you start to gain more information, you start to gain more insight, then you can go into the next relationship confident that, okay, well, I know what to look for. I have an updated smoke alarm and maybe it can't catch every kind of smoke, but at least it can, can it can catch the smoke at least that I've encountered in the past. And, but when you go in blind or you're going without any lessons learned, yeah, I mean, you're as naive as when and going in the first place. And that's, of course, you'd feel nervous. You have, you have the right to feel nervous. You need to update the smoke alarm. Yeah. So it, is it really just a matter of learning from your past experiences and just having the courage to, I guess, have the courage to enter a situation where you know your feelings might possibly get hurt? Yeah. Maybe so. I, um, I, I, I'm afraid that some people, you know, might be listening and thinking like, it just might not be worth it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I just, to get hurt like that again, to, to risk actually opening up my heart and being open to love like that, uh, that's more risk than it's worth. But, but then you have to just think like, well, why is it scary to you? Like, well, it's scary because I could be in a relationship and then I could be hurt, hurt again. It's like, well, what about that hurt? What about the whole situation falling apart hurt? 
I was like, well, part of the hurt is that I'm all lonely now and I'm rejected and uh, I'm by myself. I'm like, okay, well, forcing yourself to be by yourself is a weird solution for the fear of being by yourself. Um, <laughs> that might have been a confusing sentence, but like, you know, it's uh, yeah. it's like it's a solution that actually creates the problem that you're scared of. It's like if yeah. I'm scared of rejection, it's like, why is rejection scary? Because rejection leaves you alone. Rejection leaves you alone with, with no one to have it as a companion. And it's like, well, in, in addition to a lot of other things, but in the sense of being alone, you know, avoiding people to avoid being alone, this is not a good strategy. So you got to open yourself back up yeah. with lessons learned. That's interesting. I think a, a, a lot of people that, you know, experience traumatic experiences in the past definitely have a, they tend to close up and they're scared of, mm-hmm really being hurt like that again so that's a really good point you made that i guess it is the solution that a lot of these things is just you just have to be able to pick yourself up and do it again and and just learn from your mistakes and that's kind of as far as that goes um i think for queer people in general what they what they feel is a a i think it's it's about feeling accepted and it's about it's about feeling validated how do you begin to find that in, in yourself, especially when, you know, maybe you haven't experienced the same things others have? How do you feel that you are worth the same or that you have the potential to have those experiences as well? Yeah. Well, something that comes to mind immediately, um, it's not an unfamiliar circumstance to be in, to be like, you know, I, I, I don't know how to find any sort of like positive, you know, like stable identity or a version of myself and, and like this, these reinforcers to my identity. How can I find that in me without having to be dependent on kind of all these outside opinions and everyone's thoughts and opinions about me? Like, how can I, how can I find that in myself? And, and a question that, that came to mind as you were talking was, well, like, let's say that there was somebody else similar in, in your shoes that you were talking to and was coming to you for advice. And, and let's say, you know, so they're they're exploring for the first time this queer identity that feels very foreign yet familiar, and there's parts of it that are really scary. There's relationships maybe in their friends or their family that are in question about if they'll feel validated and seen by them, um, if they'll feel at home, or if they'll feel judged, if they feel condemned, if they feel rejected. And there's this whole world of questions that we don't know the answer to about how all those relationships are going to come together. And instead of trying to control all that and be anxious about that there, there's a desire to be kind of settled and whole in <laughs> in your own character and in your own heart so that you're not on the roller coaster of everyone else you know opinion, everyone else's opinion about you so how do you kind of arrive at that at that center like what advice would you give to them if someone told you that they were feeling worthless like what would you say well you'd probably come near to them compassionately right like you'd probably mm you'd probably want to hug them. <laughs> like yeah. you probably want to mm-hmm. hold them close. Like, like uh, honestly, a lot of those things become pretty clear when it's about someone you love. Like, let's say it was like your little brother, your little sister, your, your little niece, your cousin. Like if it was someone younger, and they came to you and they needed comfort. What would you do? How would you encourage them? And then the answer becomes pretty clear that it's less about having kind of these perfect, well-framed monologues of advice it's it's more about just that warmth and compassion 
And I think that, uh, and that's something that we learn to give ourselves to. It's a whole different skill than offering it to somebody else. But sometimes yeah. the version of us that knows how to love other people can teach the version of us that's learning how to love ourselves. Yeah, I agree. And lastly, what do you think about that, though? What, how, what comes I, to mind for you? I think that um, in terms of self-love, I definitely think that it's really just it's it's acceptance um more than anything um it's not necessarily about being in love with every aspect of yourself but just coming to accept it um and i think that's also where confidence comes comes from it's really all just about accepting your flaws and that you know maybe today you look ugly but i accept that fact and i still love myself regardless and i think um that's that's how i think about it you know, and I think even even in those spaces, like the idea of like, okay, if I was giving advice to somebody younger that I cared about, it's like for someone who's really self-critical and frustrated at themselves, like, oh, I feel like I look ugly. I feel like I, I don't know that I'm stupid. I feel like I, uh, I'm unlovable. It's like if you heard someone that you loved, that, like your little niece, cousin, nephew, like what would you say to, if, if someone said that to you? Like you probably wouldn't be like, yeah, you're probably right. You're pretty ugly and stupid. So <laughs> like, you wouldn't, yeah, exactly. you wouldn't do that. You, and then you wouldn't uh, grill them, would you? You wouldn't berate them. Be like, oh, how dare you think that about yourself? Like, like I can't believe it. Like, you would be warm and you would be compassionate. And compassion is just this like love and action trying to actually draw them in. And, and I think, I mean, like you were saying, that's that's where that comes from. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's really important for a lot of our listeners because it's definitely something they struggle with. Um, I think lastly, it's to to wrap this up. It's when you're when you find yourself in a desperate when you feel desperate enough that you want relationship, you want to be one. You're desperate for that intimacy and that experience, and you don't have access to a safe way to go about that. How do you stop yourself from turning to dangerous alternatives as a way of getting that validation and that romantic experience? That's a great question. Well, I think there's two things because, you know, I could sit here and tell everyone like, hey, don't get on Tinder and Grindr and all those apps. That's bad. And it's dangerous. But then yeah. you have someone like a home, but like, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of outlets to connect with people just at my school or in my friend group and, and that's all complicated and then there's all these people online that seem to have a similar experience to me and like i could tell just like i could tell you just don't do it but that's not helpful that's not helpful advice like the question would be like how can you tell if you're safe and how can you tell if you're in an okay place and and kind of like we were talking before like what are the lessons learned like what actually can keep you in a place where you know that you'll be okay and i think that I don't know, there, there's like a few things i, I could actually share them with you if, if feels relevant yeah. like that i think might be helpful if you're trying to kind of find connection with people online um yeah. you know there's there's some common themes that you can look for so what you want to be able to do on first hand is, is be able to identify who the person is like what age range there are what their basic information is instead of concealing information and so that doesn't have to be like your address and, and all that kind of stuff but that just has to be like okay do you have you do you know how old this person is and then like are they in the same country like did they go to a high school like you know just some basic information that you can verify and understand that who this identity is like danger likes to hang out in secrecy 
And so if you're oftentimes in these online kind of platforms, you're interacting with profiles, you're interacting with avatars, and, and that's a place full of danger. And, and so like you want to actually, even if it initially you kind of find people like, let's say you're gaming or something and you kind of meet people in these on sites or online, it's like getting to a place before you become sexual, before you become like romantic, before you become anything like that, having just some basic information like that, that you would know from any like person walking next to you in a grocery store, <laughs> like what is your age yeah. and, and like, you know, uh, where are you at? So the second would be that there's, there's elements of friendship before there's elements of romance, like that you can actually get to know, like, what are their interests? What are their favorite music? What is their, you know, uh, what do they like to do to, when they're bored? Like some of those basic things are really helpful to know. Like if you notice that conversation is getting really heavily romantic or sexual right away, that's a red flag. Like if you're, if you're trying to find connection with people and they're just trying to gear the conversation towards um, sexual content immediately, like that is, that is a, a signal of danger. And, and so yeah. Uh, like a, um, yeah, another one would be that, that just a demonstration of respect. Like when you're talking, there isn't mocking, there isn't intimidation, there isn't threats, um, you know, and even threats towards themselves. Like, Hey, talk to me, talk to me. If you don't talk to me, I'm going to hurt myself. If you don't talk to me, I'm going to kill myself. Like mm-hmm. those are just signals that you're, you're dealing with somebody that might not be safe and not might be somebody who's ready for a romantic connection with someone online that might need some mental health treatment, that might need something um, like a supportive system around them. And that, uh, you know, kind of being pulled into those kinds of relationships can create codependency and danger in that as well. And then lastly, another like red flag to kind of look for might be like, if you sense like a high amount of like them trying to isolate and kind of playing favoritism, um, meaning like uh, they are trying to kind of keep you for themselves and they don't want to you to know who their family is. Uh, they don't want to know who your family is. They don't want to meet your friends. They don't want to game like on public platforms. They just want like you and them. Everything's just by yourselves, like texting is in, or streaming or zooming, whatever. And, and you just feel like this weird sense of possessiveness where they're trying to make decisions for you. They're trying to like take over your choices. Maybe they're trying to give you advice, but they get really mad if, they, if you don't follow their advice. That is also a sign of danger. That's a sign that, you're, you're dealing with somebody that might um, not have the, just the personal resolve of character to be able to hold your choices as well as their preferences. So those, those are four things that yeah. I think are really helpful when you're trying to find connections online. It's like knowing just basic information about them. What is their age? What is their, like, where do they live? Like um, being, being able to have friendship elements and like common interests before moving into anything like romantic or sexual, being able to demonstrate respect not having any sort of like mocking or intimidation, being able to have some genuine respect, and then also looking out for possessiveness, uh, things like trying to overrun your autonomy and make choices for you. So those are yeah. four things. That That's really great. That's really great. Thank you. Is there is there anything else that you think is important that I haven't asked you about? <laughs> um, you know, I think this was a really robust conversation. We covered a lot of ground pretty quick. Uh, I'm yeah. really thankful. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. Yeah. 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 If um. Yeah, I think this is a cool podcast and a place that's safe to ask hard questions. And so I really admire the work that you're doing. Thank you. This podcast is doing to create access to information like this for anybody who's going through a lot of time. So much respect. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing as well. Where I think the world could use more, um, a bigger supply of psychotherapists and just therapy in general. So I admire that. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Hey, it's Thomas. And I'm joined by a very special guest. Hi, I'm Ebony Buffet from Rain. So um, would you like to share a little bit about yourself? Sure. 
Um, my name is Ebony Fethay, like I said. I'm the clinical director here at RAIN. Um, and I've been with RAIN for about seven years now. I am a licensed social worker. So um, I've worked in the field of really um, providing services to those impacted by trauma for about 15 years, but specifically working in the realm of sexual violence in the last seven. Um, And so that is definitely, you know, after working so many years in other areas, what I noticed was that there are so many people who are impacted by sexual violence um, that seek services in a variety of places. And there's no one who's really supporting them in their healing or really providing them the space to talk about what they've experienced. And so I like dove feet in <laughs> and haven't left. So we thought that she would be a very perfect um, expert who could share some insight with us. Uh, as our campaign is focusing on grooming and one of the consequences of grooming is trauma. So I hope we can get some insight and a little bit of advice and have our um, questions answered. Um, So the first question is, how does grooming traumatize youth? So grooming actually traumatizes youth um, because essentially it exploits their trust. You know, um, perpetrators use grooming to actually connect with, um, with youth. And really it's a false connection, right? Because they're using that connection um, in order to either use the trust to exploit that youth, to harm that youth, to manipulate. And so it really impacts the youth's sense of trust because once they're ultimately harmed or exploited by this perpetrator, this is someone they trusted. This is someone that they were connected to. And so and for them, that trust was real. It, it was authentic. And so how do I trust someone else after that? If someone that I thought cared about me, thought um, loved me or or whatever, if I thought that of you and I trusted you, how do I trust again? How do I know if the next person, um, what their motives are? Are they trying to exploit me? Are they going to harm me? So it really impacts just that that baseline, that standard of trust. And, you know, when that happens at a young age, it really impacts folks later on into their adulthood because in adulthood, you know, um, survivors of sexual assault or those who experience grooming um, often find it difficult to trust others. Um, So it, it really impacts someone's life when they are exposed to grooming at a young age. And when they um, face grooming, when they um, are groomed and they're exploited and they're abused, how do they get over it? And where, like, how can they start to better themselves? Where can they seek help? Okay. So one way, um, one way someone can try to move forward after experiencing um, grooming or exploitation, abuse, um, assault, anything like that, is they. the first thing is giving yourself permission to feel. Because so often 
um, the, the person who was grooming them will try to discount or discredit how they feel that a lot of emotional abuse, um, that, that is connected to grooming. And so it's beginning to trust yourself again and giving yourself permission to feel how you feel. If you want to cry, you have every right to, if you're angry and sometimes want to break something, hopefully it's, you know, it's not something expensive, but giving yourself permission to feel. And then also giving yourself permission to seek support from those you do feel like you can trust. And it's not, sometimes there aren't a lot of people we think we can trust. And sometimes we may not have anybody we can trust. And so that's where hotlines might come into play. Um, Of course, (laughs) I work at Reigns and we have the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Um, But there there are other hotlines, depending on, you know, what you've experienced that can really be a place where you can get some confidential and anonymous services if you don't feel like you have anyone in your life that you can trust with um, what you've experienced. And some people really don't have anyone so um, or, or they're too afraid. And so connecting with sometimes a professional or, or someone outside of your family or friend circuit might be the best first step just to explore what your options are. But definitely seeking support and giving yourself time, like giving yourself time to to be upset, to grieve, to recover, to sometimes have a good day and sometimes have a bad day. But give yourself the space to do that because it's not your fault. No matter what anyone tells you, no matter how um, the guilt trips or the shame that the perpetrator may put on you, it's not your fault. And you do have to give yourself the space to really be able to cope and, and to reach out for support. So you've worked with a lot of these victims. Um, a lot of them are underage. Um, what is your personal approach to healing from this kind of trauma and sexual assault? Um, so for me to start with, it's starting with self-compassion. Um, that's something that I always... Um, would tell tell survivors um, that I speak with that, you know, you have to give yourself some compassion. You did not know that this person was ultimately trying to harm you or hurt you. And so um, however it may seem in your mind that this is somehow your fault, it's not. And you have to be able to have some self-compassion and realizing that Trauma, whether it's sexual violence or physical violence, is really processed through various parts of us. So it's it's processed through our emotions, it's processed through our mental and our thoughts, and it's processed through our physical body. And so all of those pieces have their own healing and coping that they have to go through, right? And so there are times like you may hear folks who've experienced sexual violence or um or those who have have gone through grooming and gaslighting where they may say like they're feeling intense shame, intense guilt about what they've experienced. Um, That's that emotional piece. And so you're going to have to heal there. That's a place that's a place that's going to have to be healed. And so that might be therapy. That might be journaling. That might be going to support groups. 
that might be um that might be some type of art therapy. Healing can look so many different ways depending on the person. Um, and that's one thing that our hotline works with uh, visitors on is how to identify what your healing techniques will be and what your healing journey can look like. But knowing that there are these different pieces of us, your physical body, there are some folks who have like physical, like headaches after they've experienced trauma or constant, um, Stomach issues, like they always feel like their their stomach is in knots because uh, that's that's a part of the trauma that they've experienced and how their body is is manifesting and presenting it. And so they have to be able to find things that help with healing. What what soothes soothes you? Is it drinking a warm cup of tea? Is it being out in the sun? Is it taking um, days where you don't talk to anybody? You just have a day for you. Like it's really about identifying what are the things that speak to you and that is what your healing can look like um and it's it's not a you know one size fits all (laughs) so there's no you know and there's no right way to do it um there's because there are people who will tell you you need to go to therapy you have to go to you know you have to go to groups no one can say that because maybe that's not what your healing journey is going to look like and so um, knowing that the best way you can do it is a way that speaks to you and not to someone else. And also noting that there'll be good days and bad days, like I said before. So if you've had 12 good days and then one really bad day, it doesn't mean that you're not healing or you've regressed or you know, you're know you doing something wrong. It just means that there's going to be some good days and some bad days. But the more you keep pushing, the more you keep going, those good days start to outlast those bad days. I completely agree. I think that is so um, honest and real that um, a lot of people heal in different ways. And healing is not just one linear graph. It's There are curves. There's like, it's just one long process. And I think forgiveness and patience is a very, very big component of that. So dating apps are contributing to a lot of this um, grooming, a lot of this sexual violence, a, a lot of this um, abuse. So what advice would you give to underage people going on these dating apps to fulfill their needs? I mean, I start with safety has to be the priority. Um, we know that there are folks that are on these apps who their purpose their sole reason that they're on these apps is to harm. Like they are are looking for folks that they can take advantage of, that they can lie to, they can groom, they can manipulate. And so coming into, um, if, if you're going to um, use dating apps, being very aware and honest with yourself, like, hey, there are, there are folks on here who don't mean me any good, right? They 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 are seeking to hurt others. And so I need to, you know, if this is something I really want to do because, I mean, we don't have to use dating apps, but right now it's a little, you know, being quarantined is <laughs> hard. And so um, how do I identify, like, what are the safest dating apps or, or and, and what does it mean to be a safe dating app? What, where are the, the process, what, what are the protocols that they have in place? 
What are the standards? Um, how is my information protected? Um, um, how how do they, you know, vet people who are on this? If they do that, um, how how do they ensure safety? What if I if I have a complaint? What do they do? Like really doing your homework on these dating apps that you're deciding to um, to to log into, and then also going into um, if you're going to do online dating or um, or utilize dating apps. Being clear on what is okay to share and what is not, you know, being able to set your boundaries. Hey, I don't give people this information. They don't need to know the city that I live in. Um, really being able and different, of course, different apps, you know, they have requirements, various requirements. And so if those requirements violate your boundaries, you don't even need to, to, to deal with that app because we're talking about perpetrators accessing this information and utilizing this information to harm others. And so what I want young people to, to really understand, um, I want everybody to understand who's using date naps. You really have to be able to, to say, well, what's my boundaries? What do I want known about me? What am I okay with? If someone, um, if I, what discussions am I okay with? Am I not okay with someone bringing up sex on the first two times we talk to each other or we chat each other? And I explain that and they still do it. Bye. Gotta go. (laughs) You know, I mean, really being able to set boundaries when you're, when you're talking with people, um, Hey, that's not, I'm not okay with that. Or this is like how, you know, how I've, you know, want to communicate. I don't want to have, I, I don't like receiving communications after 11 p.m. You know, if this person is like sending messages all night or sending pictures of themselves and you say, I don't like, bye, gotta go. <laughs> so it's really about being able to set your boundaries. If there's anything I can say, set your boundaries and hold firm to them. If someone won't respect them and honor them, bye. There's someone else out there. Exactly. And it's really important for you to realize that you aren't obligated to give anyone anything. Um, Like they are just some stranger online. You don't need to send nudes. You don't need to share your information if you don't want to. So please, um, you know, take those precautions and keep yourself safe. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, exactly. And the last question is, what is sexual wellness and what does it look like? So I, I actually love that question um, because when I think of sexual wellness, I really think of any sexual activity between partners or any sexual activity where boundaries are respected, consent, is honored and and requested and acknowledged and where there is open communication without fear. And so there are so many relationships and there are so many sexual experiences that can occur that doesn't 
have all of those pieces, but for it to be wellness and for it to be healthy, there has to be, I have to be able to communicate my boundaries and, and, and you have to be able to communicate your boundaries and they be respected and honored. And consent has to be at the core of it because if, if everything that's happening is not consensual, then we're talking about some an abusive situation. If, it, if it's not consensual, we're talking about some manipulation of some sort, some coercion of some sort. And that is that all is unhealthy. That coercion can never be healthy. <laughs> so uh, really, really being able to have that open communication without fear of some kind of harm or damage or like really being able to, to express yourself um, sexually and feel good about it. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, so this was a very helpful and insightful conversation. Um, I hope that if you are listening and you um, kind of resonated with what we said, we, we said something that you could kind of take into your own um, health and uh, take care of yourself with. Um, and yeah, do you have anything else to say? Sure. Um, I always have tons and tons and tons to say, right? Um, but one thing I really want to hone in on is that, you know, in grooming situations, um, they often occur when sometimes we may not feel um, as loved in our other relationships or as respected or as honored as we, as we may need to feel or want to feel. And that um, then someone comes in with this this false sense of I mean this this not false for us but um, it it is false because they don't really care and we open up and we connect and you know we think after these this grooming situation or this relationship I can never trust again um, I can never have healthy relationships again. Um, I am ultimately forever damaged in some way. I just want to say that is all untrue. You are not damaged. We all have experienced some kind of trauma in some kind of way. (laughs) So you are not damaged. Um, And the fact that someone manipulated or lied, you know, coerced you and and built um, a false trust, that is not your fault and that you can have healthy relationships. You can have love in your life. You can have support in your life. Please don't let those instances or that that situation derail your thinking or cause you to feel like you are unlovable because you deserve love, you deserve respect, and you deserve honor. Exactly. Um, I just think that um, I know it's super difficult and it's a really painful process to uh, move forward, to heal, but I think everyone deserves that chance and they deserve to give themselves the opportunity to heal and to grow. Um, 
hopefully um, you guys really enjoyed um, this episode, this interview. Um, and thank you so much for joining us, um, Ebonique. Um, you are really terrific. And I hope that um, you guys really check out her organization. And if you need help, please reach out. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's, uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. You got to hear from some really, really uh, great experts, Matthias, Ebonique, and Timothy. Thank you so much again for coming on the show and speaking to us. Um, and hopefully you got something out of it because they, they said a lot of really valuable stuff. Uh, let us know what you found the most useful. Um, we would love to, we would love to read through those comments. Anyways, um, yeah, thank you for listening and uh, we will see you in the next episode of Swiping Safely. Thank you. Bye.